Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cults Podcast. Tonight, a man that as far as I'm concerned, he's one of the top five modern cinematographers. This is a DP who is seconds away from becoming a household name as Ellswit are Deacons is right now. It is a true honor to introduce Lori Lowell Crawley. Lowell, how are things? Oh, thank you so much. A wonderful introduction. Um, thank you. Uh, things are good. I, I moved to LA 18 months ago from London, um, <clears throat> just prior to the lockdown. So, uh, yeah, I, I can think of worse places to be, um, to be locked down. It's, uh, it's sunny and, uh, lots of places to walk and hike. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty great. Did you find yourself staying pretty creative during this lockdown the last year and a bit? Uh, I did. I did. I actually, um, my mother gave me a medium format camera that she had when she was 18. She was gifted it in a, a, by a family in Switzerland, I believe. It's this old German camera. And I uh, put some film through it. So I, I went out and was taking photos and I was... I, I played the guitar, so I was playing music, and um, and writing a little bit as well. So yeah, it was it was it, it was great. Do you try to shoot on film as much as you can, or do you feel like the older you get, you kind of it, it's 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 getting away from you a little bit? To be quite honest, is it something that you would like to maybe do even a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I, I love I love shooting film. I've actually been really very lucky um, in that there are there are several directors that I've worked with that that it isn't even an issue in terms of whether we shot film or not. So that's, I, I've had a good, a good run um, that's been broken by a couple of digital features. Um, but yeah, Devil All the Time for Antonio Campos. I came on board that Netflix and it's unusual for Netflix to, you know, to, to support 35, but I, I'm very uh, appreciative of the fact they did. <clears throat> um, but it was a it was a done deal when I came on board. Antonio wanted to shoot it, uh, and then movies for Brady Corbet, Childhood of a Leader, and and Box Lux, and and um, we're about to start prepping a new one. And that's there's no uh, there's no question that whilst film is still being produced and being processed, um, that's 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 uh, the way it's going to go. You know, so it's. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's just a very specific medium. It's, it's, I like to keep an open mind and to try and respond accordingly with the, with the format, but it's, um, you know, as, a, as opposed to just a blanket statement, it had to be on film. Um, but, uh, but no, it's, it's still beautiful to be able to shoot, to shoot on film. It's so specific, nothing else uh, completely matches it. Do you find that you're, doing a lot of collaborations with the filmmakers that you work with for the look of the film, or do they kind of just let you do your own thing? Have, have you gotten to a level now where <laughs> Brady just comes to you and says, this is kind of the idea of the film and just run with it, whatever you will, or is it still really a big collaborative process? No, it's still really a big collaborative process. I mean, <clears throat> and actually that's the best for me, you know, uh, that's the way it should be. And it's interesting. I think about it often, uh, 
you know, when you're a DP, you're the only DP on set, so you don't really get to see other DPs work, you know, unless when you're a camera assistant, uh, as I was, you know. But then also you're, you're, you're so busy doing what you do, it's hard to, to really focus on what other people are doing as well, you know. Um, <clears throat> it's, you know, with somebody like, like take, let's take Brady as an example, as well as Antonio, but... Um, because I've had these two films and, and a, a third one prepping with Brady, it's probably a better example. But he's <clears throat> he has such a, a specific idea um, of certain shots and certain uh, not even certain shots, just just the language of the film. Um, and Brady, Brady, for example, very very minimal minimal coverage. So what you see in Vox Lux and you see in Childhood of a Leader, <clears throat> excuse me, is very much what we shot, you know? <clears throat> I remember the first time that uh, there's, there's a shot in Childhood of a Leader that's like a seven-minute Steadicam shot, you know? And, it's, it, and it starts off what you think is maybe a dolly shot, and then you realize the camera moves up and it goes into the kitchen to sort of eavesdrop on a conversation that Rob Patterson's having um, with, with, with Bernice um, Bijot. And then it's interrupted... Um, by Liam Cunningham's character, and, and and then it turns into going up the stairs to the to the to the child, and then results in the child having his arm snapped. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's there's a certain humour to it, a dark humour in Brady's films. Anyway, so um, that's that's how it ends. And I remember we were shooting. It was the second day or something. And I think it was probably the first day with 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 Tom, uh, the young actor who was incredible in in the film. And, you know, we were doing this long take and it was going well, you know, but it took like most of the day to do, you know, as it should. And um, I said, oh, you know, I found a moment and I was like, hey, Brady, maybe we should just, you know, cover it with one other shot or whatever. And he was, he took me to one side very nicely and he just said, look, I don't ever want the cat, I don't ever want the audience to be able to focus on anything else or cut to anything else unless I'm showing the audience something different, you know? And I was like, great. And I kind of think like you have a responsibility as a, as a, as a DP to, if you get a sense of something or see something or think you can, you know, um, you know, that maybe it's going to be a problem in the cut or whatever it might be, uh, that you raise it, you know, and then you raise it and if, and, and you run with whatever, whatever response you get, you know, but I knew early on that, that Brady had such a strong sense of how he was going to construct it and cut it, you know, um, so yeah, uh, a long-winded answer, I think, but, but, um, but yeah, absolutely a collaboration. And what, I, one thing I was just going to say was that if you're in a situation where you, you're working with a director and they are leaning on you too heavily, um, to sort of, to come, I mean, this is just talking personally, but to sort of, uh, completely direct the language of the film that you're then going to walk away from and not going to be cutting. I, I, I don't, that doesn't work for me. Like it, you have to have the best possible scenario is having a director who absolutely knows what they want and they let you run with it and together and a thing escalates and, and, and ends up here. Whereas it would be here if it was just one of you sort of pushing forward with it. When you mentioned Robert Pattinson, you have now captured him in some of his most transformative roles. Do you find that you, you 
like Brady, want to continue to work with the actors that you've been working with as well? Have you found like that perfect light for for these specific actors? Are you are you excited when you find out that somebody like Robert is attached to a project as well? Yeah, hundred percent. When when I uh, when I found out he was on board for um, the Devil All the Time, I was you know I was thrilled um, because I didn't you know he he. He had a bigger role in Devil than he did in childhood. And so it was, you know, and um, it was also just kind of really, <clears throat> so, you know, so I wanted to spend more time with him. Um, and it was, it's also just kind of interesting to, because I don't, I think Antonio has spoken about this, but um, uh, he kept his rehearsal process kind of, to himself to a certain degree and certainly the voice and things. So what he came out with on that day, the first day of filming, you know, was extraordinary. Um, but yeah, we just, you know, everyone just kind of, you know, you run with it, but I'm also like coming back to your idea of lighting. I, I've never, you know, I was, I was, you know, I'm still a big fan of like Harris Civide's work, you know, and I love, and I, and his, his approach and his kind of thinking behind his approach and I the his his what he said in the past about sort of lighting a space or a location or a room or a set and not lighting the actors I've, I've responded to you know so it's like I don't I don't necessarily see a face and do a lot of lighting tests for that particular face you know I mean it's a consideration and something that the the one thinks about but but I think my, because my background has been very much coming from a kind of like, very early on it was available light, non-actors kind of scenario. It was about, there was a certain naturalism that I was, that was being explored in those early films. And um, I suppose the more traditional approaches to lighting and cinematography were, were somewhat kind of jettisoned for, for, being more intrigued by, you know, um, Bruno Dumont movies or what or what Andrea Arnold and Robbie Ryan were doing, you know. So it was it was it was there was a, and I'm still intrigued by this. This kind of wonderful relationship between documentary and film, where you don't you you don't fully know, you know. There's a blurring between those things, and I and I'm more often more intrigued by that. Uh, than I am in this kind of setup of classical Hollywood. Well, do you find yourself approaching every project a little bit the same? Do you come with a certain lenses that you were probably going to use, the certain lighting setups, because you have that little, like, docu, I guess, element to, to your style? Or do you really approach every single film differently every single time? I, I No, I, I actually... Tr- um, it's an interesting question, um, and the first part of that question made me bristle. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the second part of the question, I wasn't sure whether I was actually uh, accomplishing that or not. So, w- what I mean by that is, I, I, I don't want to be a one-trick pony. I think there, I think there are kind of like, I think it's interesting because I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be like a, a, a cinematographer who's a kind of uh, jack of all trades, master of none, as it were. Oh, I can do that. Oh, I can do that. Because I think there are certain things that I absolutely cannot do. 
I know there are certain things that I, or I currently cannot do, or I don't choose to do. There are certain things that I think are specific about me and specific about the way that I see the world and I was brought up and things that I connect with and things that I like. That, and I think everybody has that. I'm not saying it's unique to me, but I think, I think those things you try to stay true to. When you read a script, you go, well, can I actually contribute to this in a meaningful way and that will please me and support the film? Or should I just let it go to somebody else? You know, like, like you, you know, when you try to force something and you kind of go, well, there's some things I just, I don't think I can do that better than anybody else, you know? And there are other films where I'm like, I know I can do that as good as someone, you know? Like, so it's interesting. And I think that is a very sort of personal thing to me. And I, I, I don't know how other people feel, but, you know, like if I'm operating handheld, I even though I have an operator on films in the US, um, I really insist on doing the handheld work myself because I just think there's something, that's kind of where I came from. And I and I and it's kind of like the idea of someone doing handheld work in a Robbie Ryan shot movie. It just doesn't, it just, there's something so beautiful and you feel him inhabit that camera work that hopefully I come, you know, I, 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 I'm of the same school. So, did that answer your question? <laughs> of course it did. Well, you, you mentioned your upbringing. I'm very interested about your early influences. So I want to take you way back now. Do you feel like it was easy it's getting... It's like therapy. <laughs> like regression therapy. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Do you feel like you got the kinds of art that you wanted growing up? Was it easy? Was it accessible to you? Or did you feel like you were out there trying to make the kinds of stuff that you actually wanted? That's a that's an interesting question, uh, and and I guess in our, or to answer it, we have to go quite far back. So I grew up in Wales, um, in in the middle of nowhere, really. I mean, culturally, I mean, in terms of kind of like or, or different culture. I mean, it was sort of you know the nearest town was kind of eight miles away. The nearest city as it were was sort of 25 miles away so um you know and we had like three television program uh, television stations you know two bbc and itv at that time you know so this is like i was born in 74 so i'm talking about the 80s really you know and then we had this other channel channel four that came up so you know my parents were like you know they would they would take me to kind of galleries and uh you know when we came across them they just weren't that many around um uh, but I do remember, you know, and I use this as an example. I do remember that my, there was a, there was a, a sh when channel four first started, there was a show that came on and it was called road dreams. And it was this guy, uh, Elliot Bristow, I believe now lives in Bristol in the UK. And he was an Amer American guy who shot these super eight videos, you know, a super eight films rather, uh, across, across the U S and he set them to music um, by, I want to say it's like Leo Kotke, like this you know, fast playing um, guitar player. And, um, and they were all just these silent movies apart from the music. And they were just travelogues, beautiful travelogues across America, you know. And growing up in the UK, there was this kind of like influence 
was from America. We, you know, I used to listen to like Dylan albums and Easy Riders soundtrack albums. So I had this kind of like American influence. And then these films came on. And then I really got into like the music of REM. And then I saw, I saw like their music videos, which appealed to me. And it didn't really occur to me like how similar these things were. And then I come to shoot Ballast, the very first film that I shot in Mississippi, which is a, a whole other story of itself. But, but um, essentially when I started shooting that and it was kind of sh shot from cars, handheld, it suddenly, I suddenly realized where all this stuff had come from, you know, where this kind of stuff that appealed to me early on had come from. Um, so there was that, there was definitely that early influence. And then, and then I certainly remember, I certainly remember, and I, I thought nothing of this for a long time, or maybe thought about this eight years ago. I remember um, being a kid driving in the small lane back to my house, and I started to put my hand up and look at the, close one eye, and I was looking at the world through this little kind of peephole that I made with my hand. And I, and I was like, oh, shit, that's, that's interesting, you know. So, and that, you know, my parents weren't in, in film and they weren't photographers and, you know, uh, uh, particularly, you know, like my mum had a camera, like I said, but they, were, they weren't artists, you know. Uh, so I wasn't sort of like absorbing all of this stuff. But what I do think I was absorbing was just a sensibility, you know, and I find that hard to articulate or hard to sort of like explore, but I know it's there, you know, and I, it's probably part of my hippie upbringing, but I definitely feel there was this kind of like, there's a, there's a, there's a something, there's a sensibility or some way of reacting to the world that still exists and seeps in somewhere or still, I feel, I still found fascinating. And yeah, that's, um, that's how I feel. Well, was there a particular film or like a moment that you realized you wanted to go down the cinematography route? Like, what was it about the light and the camera that really drew you to that side of film as opposed to yeah. maybe, let's say, directing? Yeah, well, you know, I went to, uni I went to university to study film. Uh, it was this course in Newcastle called... Uh, um, called media production and it essentially would allow you to shoot 16 mil film and they processed it in-house black and white so you know which is a a rarity these days and this is like 94 to 97 um but even then there weren't that many places that were shooting you know working on film still so and i actually went to university so i so i applied for that course because i i i guess art got me into photography i was at school i was into art and then and then I got into photography after that and then moving image after that and then went to university. And, and I think when I went to university, I wanted to direct, but I think that's only because I had no idea what else anybody did in the industry, you know? And I think that that's not uncommon, you know? I think that happens a lot. And then when I was there, I was just really, I would think I was just always really drawn to the cameras and, um, in, you know, I, I can't remember exactly how I fell into it. I do remember that there was there was a guy, there was a director, well, a director to be called Dwayne Hopkins. So there's two students that were in my year, Dwayne Hopkins and Sam Haley. And Sam ended up becoming a producer and Dwayne a director. And then I, after graduating, I shot short films with them. And then um, we did a, we did my second film and their first film. So that was. That was a movie called Better Things in the UK. But in terms of like, 
I remember going. I remember distinctly when I was at university going to see Breaking the Waves, the Lars von Trier film, and being blown blown away by it. I just, I in fact, even more than the, you know, because there wasn't a lot of lighting. I guess it was the camera work, um, the way that Robbie Muller operated the camera, and also it was the edit. You know, that was the big thing. It was the sound edit. It was the fact there was a moment where like. There's a moment where like Jan, where Jan's about to go away and then Emily, um, um, uh, I, can't remember, I can't remember the character, the, the um, forgive me, I can't remember the character's name, but um, Jan and her, they go running off together. And then, you know, she's desperately unhappy because he has to go away to the oil rigs and they take these, they take these metal pipes and they just start smashing them on this kind of like, bit of industrial stuff, you know. And there was just something beautiful about the way that the sound was cut and the way that the image worked with the sound. And just this, again, this kind of documentary approach of kind of like just jump cutting, essentially. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. It was just these jump cuts in the sound and the vision. And I remember just being kind of spellbound by that and feeling it just felt very authentic and felt very real. And then, you know, like I'd loved films like, Paris, Texas, you know, was another was another great one that I that I loved at university. And then the, you know, those Tarantino movies were coming out. There was all sorts of kind of like, as as there is now, you know, just all sorts of things coming from different angles for a sort of young mind that's interested in cinema. But but I think it's really those, it's really film, it's really those films um, like Paris, Texas, and 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 breaking the waves that sort of speak to me as a person. I don't know why, there's just something about the less stylized, you know, more honest kind of like uh, examinations of the human condition that I, that just really fascinate me. And that's what I, I still keep coming back to time after time, I think. What have you noticed has changed the most in your time? I, I mean, definitely, definitely without a doubt, if we're talking about, well, if we're talking about anything in terms of cinema, it's the big, it's the change from digital, from from film, shooting on film to digital. It's the rise of, you know, the digital, uh, digital cameras in the digital age, you know. Um, so when I first started, which was like 90, straight straight after graduating, I, I became a camera trainee on a 16 mil channel for production, drama production, you know, and everything was 16 mil, everything was 16 mil. And then I remember loading on Phantom Menace and I was still loading because they had this VistaVision camera that they wanted to, that they wanted to shoot, which, you know, VistaVision is like an eight perf. It's like double, double the neg area that you'd have on a, on a, on a 35 mil four perf pull down. So they, they lent into those still, even though the majority was shot on digital, they lent into, lent into those for the VFX work. But even, you know, but I remember Phantom Menace being, you know, George Lucas was like, "We're going to shoot everything on these panavised Sony cameras," you know, and that was definitely the beginning. And then Red came in and just shook everything up, you know, and wouldn't have had the Alexa and wouldn't have had the Sony Venice, and you know, and it's um, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest change for me, but. Uh, and, and the second biggest change is, I think, how first ACs now operate, because that was never the case. You know, like the, the whole that's that's a really noticeable shift the way that first ACs behave on set. You know, for better or for worse. You know, uh, largely it's for better, but 
there used to, when I when I started, there was definitely this kind of like um, you know, which is twenty uh, odd years ago. But there's this, there's, there was definitely this. Um, the focus pullers had this, or the first ACs had this real power, you know, and they'd get their tapes out and they would, they would rule the set. And I, you know, I remember hearing tales of like, if an actor didn't hit their mark, the focus puller would throw their, you know, this is a rarity. <laughs> this is a rarity. Um, but I heard tales of the focus puller just throwing their tape measure down in disgust, like they didn't hit their mark, you know. And, and I think there's an attitudinal sh- shift uh, as well because I just don't see that sort of behavior now. You know, it's very much like the first ACs, um, you know, for sure they run the technical side of the camera department, but they're, they're not near the camera in the same way they used to be. And they're there with a C stand and they monitor and they're in the corner. And I, you know, I have so much respect for first ACs because I did it for a short time and then was lucky enough to start shooting. Um, <laughs> I, was never, I was never a great first AC. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a dark art. I mean, it's incredible. And also it's, you know, it's a thankless task because if you get it right, you just move on. Even if it's an incredibly difficult shot, you know, you might have one person say, Hey, well done. That was great. Um, but if you get it wrong, you know, you can be fired and that's it. You know, it's, um, and it's a very, very, very difficult job. It's a very difficult job, you know, and people, I'm very blessed in, I have people that I work with that just, do it, you know, and everybody now shoots the rehearsal and it's you know, which again, for better or for worse, like there are, there are pluses and minuses with that approach, but that's, those are the, those are the two big changes that I've, that I've seen. Do you think that you should maybe work your way up <laughs> in the film industry? It seems to me like a lot of cinematographers, they get lucky on, on one thing that they very first shoot and they're just a cinematographer. And it seems like there's an essence that isn't there. But then you have guys like you that you worked a camera. You you kind of worked your way up there and you learned the craft. And you worked your way to become a DOP. Do you think that you kind of need to do that? Or do you actually do disagree with that? And you think you don't really need to in the long run? I think I think what you have to do is do it the way, the only way that you can do it. Is there, and I... And what I mean by that is I, I just think it's such a personal thing. I remember when, okay, so I think there's two things. I think one is knowing what you, knowing how to do something. The second is having the confidence to be able to express that you know how to do something, you know? And so, you know, like I'll use an example. So when I was at university, we shot on 16 mil. There was no way that we were going to come out and be cinematographers. It wasn't the National Film and Television School. It was a great course, but it was like, it was an opportunity to be like, okay, I, I think I can fall in love with this and I'm going to come out and work my way up. Whatever. When I, so I was, you know, at university, I was shooting stuff and I was using light meters and I was, you know, I was, I was, I felt like I was shooting a film, right? I had that, that was a great privilege that the university gave me. Um, and I would put boards on and stuff, you know, and do all that stuff. Then when I came out and became a camera trainee, I stood in the wrong place. I was always in doorways. Every time someone asked me to put a board on, I like fumbled it. And so it's interesting. It's like one, it, and I, it's not that I didn't know what I was doing to a certain extent. It's just that I could never have come out and been like, oh, I'm going to, I mean, you know, I could, but I wasn't that person. 
Like I wasn't the person who was going to be like, okay, I'm going to, here I am a cinematographer, you know? So I think, I suppose what I'm trying to say is we all have our own personal journeys through this thing. And I actually think if you want to come out of the national television school, or you know what, if you don't, if you want to be a kid shooting, shooting stuff and making shorts as 18, a 19 year old or whatever, and it works, just do it. Like I, I, I'm kind of all for just like fine, you know, as long as what, you know, what, what is tricky is if you're, is if you're shooting something as a DOP and you're either, you know, you're disrespectful to people or you don't respect what the ACs have to go through or any of those things, you know, I think they're a bad, you know, but, but in general, I think in general, I firmly believe that if you want to do something, you should just kind of go and do it, you know? And uh, I think those old traditions maybe are breaking down a little bit. And I, you know, I'm not sure I condone this idea that like when I was starting, that was like, you don't get to shoot anything until you're like 45 or 50. I was like, let's <laughs> go and shoot. It, it, yeah. it's, it's a crazy notion. It's like, it's the same way with the Teamsters. It's like these old guys have the job and until they die, you're you're not getting there. Like you're just you you're not getting anywhere near this. It's crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I but you know, I think it's I think it's definitely it's definitely changed. And you know, one thing that is that is really great, I have to say, is that is there's definitely an evolution in terms of like um uh people of different gender and uh and 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 ethnicity getting involved in 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 film and it's a slow thing for sure it's definitely not the way it should be it's definitely still a majority of people like me privileged white uh men you know working in this industry but there were never there were never this many like female dps for example when i started out and there weren't that many fem- there was definitely a majority of, pe- of of men of of guys on the course that i was on and stuff so i hope i really hope that what we're seeing is some some force of change, you know, that means that things, that it's not elitist in the way that, you know, uh, that it once was. And I, I think it's, a, I think we're on a, still at the very early end of it, of that, of that road. And we have a long way to go, you know. Um, but I hope that things are changing. Well, where would you like to see cinematography go? Like even past that, being more inclusive, which it needs to be film in general, it doesn't even matter from just the the director, cinematographer, acting standpoint, all the way down. If if you're a best boy, if if you're the the lowest, like anything, we need to be more inclusive in the film industry for sure. sure. But where? But else, sorry, go on. I was just gonna say, but where else do you kind of want to see cinematography go from here? <clears throat> well. Um... So I'm 47 this year. Um, so, so, and I say that because there's a tendency for me to be a little bit of a luddite. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose one thing. This kind of circles back to what we were talking about: uh, digital uh, and the rise of digital. Selfishly, I think DPs want to keep all of their options open creatively, right? So that means that. Um, 
What I would like to see is for that sort of rich palette of different formats and different um, aesthetics to, to, to remain on the table, you know? Um, you know, I thought there was a really exciting time at the end of the 90s where you had, you know, filmmakers like, uh, you know, Harmony Kareen and, and uh, Anthony Dodd Mantle shooting, you know, where they, where they you know, and, and Lars von Trier and the Dogma, so where, they, where they weren't, so it was just before, like, you know, Red and Alexa and all these formats that were trying to emulate 35mm. And, and they were take, taking a digital format and unapologetically showing that it was a digital, digital format. But you had Festen, you had Julian Donkey Boy, and I loved all that. And I, I'm kind of really, you know, I, where I would like to see cinematography go is for, is for that stuff to still have a place in the world, I suppose. I'm, I'm less excited by... 4K and 6K and 8K and 12K and what I'm just I I actually like things to be for me I like the image to be broken down a little more and to be obfuscated a little more and have more opportunity for impressionism and and painterly uh, a painterly aesthetic you know um, and and I suppose I find film is closer to that like out of the box as it were you know um, and I and because technology is so kind of, is so, you know, it's such a growth industry and it's so prevalent and the tie-in with games and, and, and art, you know, and sort of VR, et cetera. These things are all gonna coalesce. These things are all gonna come together to a point where, you know, you're shooting something and you can decide where the focus goes and, you know, this is already happening, this kind of technology. Which I think, you know, is appropriate for certain things, but I suppose, I suppose I would miss I what I don't relish is the idea that cinematography becomes becomes sort of dictated by a but I don't want it to be this idea that bigger is better, you know, and that, that more pixels is better and that the cleaner the image is the, the better something is, you know. I think that's a dangerous way to go. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my current feelings on it. Well, like as much as I like guys like Fincher and Eric Messerschmidt, when you go to that level to add grain in post, do you, you as a cinematographer, do you just kind of laugh at that and say, why didn't you just shoot this on film to begin with? It would have been easier. It probably in the long run would have been cheaper. And it just, <laughs> to me, as, yeah. somebody, as somebody who's been in the industry for 25 years, I just don't understand why you would go to that amount of, of work when it could just be done a whole hell of a lot easier and just keep using the film format? Yeah, I don't, <clears throat> it's a good question. I mean, I, I think I would have to, have to respectfully say that there are so many, you know, as you know, there are so many components to make, that make up a budget and to why one would approach something a certain way that I wouldn't, <clears throat> I don't know what, I don't know why they made those decisions. Um, However, you know, 99 takes might have something to do with it. I don't know. What <laughs> <laughs> Although Kubrick did it, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the, you know, maybe I, I don't know what Finch's, I don't, I don't, I mean, he, Finch's doesn't, as far as I'm aware, and I'm sure I'll be corrected on this if, if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, he's not Tarantino and Chris Nolan, um, in terms of flying the flag for film, right? Oh, he's definitely not. He really no. is. 
I, I want I want the world to be digital, and I'm gonna right. make it look like film oh. in the end, but I still sure. want it to be digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's definitely. I mean, as much as I love the idea of shooting film, and long may it continue, I'm also aware that you know it's getting you know it's it's past the point of where we're talking about it like it's vinyl, you know, and it's like, you know, we're talking about it in these in these ways that are that are. You know, you might go into a meeting and sort of and 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 talk about the the benefits of shooting film in these terms. At which point, the producer's like, "Okay, that's all very nice. We're going to shoot digital." You know, because it's <laughs> you, you know because you, you you can't you can't even really talk about it in the way that you used to with like oh the white points and the black points. I mean, you can, I guess, but it's like things are so rarefied at that point and so specific. Um, it's really hard to to kind of fight it in those slightly esoteric terms or whatever it might be. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, there was a time early, to, you know, when, where you could say, look, one is absolutely not the same as the other. But I think, you know, 99% of the audience for Mank are probably, well, <clears throat> slightly less than that probably don't even care if it was shot on digital or film. And, and, you know, and then and then those that do, you know, I, I just don't. Yeah, I don't know who's. Uh, yeah, I don't know who's fighting. You know, there's, there's there's just few people fighting the good fight, as it were, to keep film. Uh, and 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 you know that gap is closing between the two, and a lot of the time it is hard to to differentiate, which just makes it harder and harder to to justify shooting film. You know, but. I just know that I know that myself having shot on film is just uh, especially for period, you know, it just feels like it just feels like the obvious choice. I'm glad that you talked about well, a little bit about different formats and mixing different formats. Is there anything that you have always wanted to try out, like a sixteen there are sixty-five millimeter or seventy millimeter? into like an eight millimeter. Is there any kind of formats that you haven't used yet that you would like to use or anything that you used early on in your career that you'd kind of like to bring back nowadays? It's interesting. It's, it's very, um, well, with, with Brady's film, I think we're going to have the opportunity to try and explore something very similar to that. Uh, that's, that's the current plan, you know. So, um, so good segue right there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so with Vox Lux, we Brady was very keen to to shoot some scenes on sixty five mil, which never happened for various reasons. One, one of them being that sixty five mil cameras are very very few and far between. There aren't there really aren't that many packages left in the world. I think Panavision has maybe six. Excuse me, Ari has 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 a couple. Um, so so they're really hard to get a hold of. But with with um, with the Brutalist, which is Brady's next film, we we're keen to sort of we're keen to look at VistaVision as a as a format, which is a, which which as I mentioned earlier, which is basically the the, the film is the mags go on it's, it it shoots it like a like you would a stills camera, so the the film is going through horizontally rather than pulled through vertically, so the mag literally sits on the, you know, in a horizontal position as opposed to on top of the camera. Um, 
So, and then, and then the idea of, 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 of shooting some 16 mil as well. I don't think anything less than that, but, and then 35 for the majority. So we're sort of, you know, sort of exploring the idea of those different formats you know, at the moment. Do you think that the Brutalist is maybe the best thing that both you and Brady have done up until this point? Just even thinking about it, going into this, is this, are, are you, would you say you're most excited about this than anything that you've done before? It's an interesting question. I think it's, I think it's, it's always, there's always an, a, a very specific excitement based on the possibilities that are open, you know? So it's like at that early stage when you have, you know, great scripts, great heads of department, great producers backing you, and you're kind of in this position of like, you know, what can we achieve here, you know? And it's, 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 it's a blank canvas and that's really exciting and watching those things kind of those pieces come together and those things fill in is really exciting. I, I personally really like, um, I like shooting on location. I think it comes back to what I said earlier about this idea of, um, being, of being restricted in some way. So like with, with sort of non-actors and real locations, you're in these spaces, you're like, okay, I have to find it, you know? And, and there's something really great about finding it. So going to a real location without the director often in the prep and just coming back with these images of how you've responded and then discuss how you can actually use this for like a, you know, a master shot or maybe with this all plays in the wide or, you know, look at this. We never saw this idea of shooting something through a frame, a doorway as another frame, whatever it might be, you know, some, there's something really exciting about that. Uh, there's um like uh, coming back to the cinematographers that I sort of greatly admired. Christopher Doyle was like a, a really, really you know someone who who I had a real light bulb moment in 2005, just just before I shot my first the f- Ballast, the first film. Um, and I remember him in Poland talking, you know, and I and I was. You know, I was sort of, I was, I think I was even there with like a little notepad, you know, pen and notepad, you know, it's a wonderful festival in, in this was in Woods at this time. And um, there was a DP on before him and I was taking all these notes, technical notes, you know, and all these things about like how, how you light certain things. Cause I just didn't know how to, I really didn't know how to light them. And um, even though I shot these short films, I really didn't know. Uh, and um, then Chris Doyle came out, you know, and he was wonderful. You know, he was like a he was like a mixture of Harpo Marx, uh, Andy Warhol, and Keith Moon. Like he was just <laughs> this, like incredible creature of just like creativity and energy and fuck you. He was he just had this thing about him that was so appealing. I just thought, oh my god, this is like. He was like the Keith Richards of, of cinematography, you know. Anyway, so he um, he um, he you know he he had this. He remember he said this one thing, and he, um, you know he said like in the West you say you know uh, here's the frame, how do I fill it? You know you have complete control. You have you have all this control, and um, and he said in Asian cinema. You say, here's the world, how do you frame it, you know? 
And I love this idea. I love this concept that it was about you weren't in control all the time. You didn't know everything. It wasn't all about imposition, you know, and there are wonderful films made that way, you know, Tarantino, Hitchcock, Scorsese, you know, whatever, you know, like this absolute idea of I know what this is and this, you know, this is how I do it. And when, and the filmmaking process is then going to be put stick A to B to C to D and that's it. But I love this idea that you weren't fully in control. You didn't, you were open to the possibilities of what might offer itself up to you. And I think it's again, the same idea of like documentary and fiction because that allows things to bleed through, you know, and you're kind of thinking, oh, that's, you know, it just allows the world to present something that you respond to. And I, and I find that really fascinating. Well, and then we can talk about influences outside of film. How much do you feel like music played a role in, in how you, I guess, create as an artist? How much do you hold music near and dear to your heart, even to this day? Oh, um, it's the first thing. It's, the, it's above film, it's above cinematography for me. It's like, it's interesting you ask that question. I mean, I, I mean, I played guitar since I was like 14. Um, and there's something very immediate about music, you know? It's sort of like, it, you know, if I'm, if I'm shooting a film and then I, I go back to the hotel or something, there's something so great about being able to pick up an instrument and then it's, you, you're immediate, there's immediate gratification, whereas the, the filmmaking process is much more protracted, you know? Um, but there's but there's definitely certainly like in terms of handheld there's a musicality to the way that there's a call and response i think that if if you're operating if you're operating handheld badly you miss all the beats you know something will happen you're always behind the so it's there's a sense of timing a similar sense of rhythm and you're behind the beat and then when you get it and you're suddenly like a hand comes up, somebody touches another hand and you go down for it. And it has, and I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know what that is when, 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 when it happens the, that way, you know, but I just know it's magical and it's like to be cherished and it's a, it's just a great, great thing. And I think, so I hope that answers your question, but I definitely think there's a strong link between that kind of like musicality and rhythm and uh, but then I also think the danger with film is that if something isn't working, you can sort of paper the cracks with music, you know, <laughs> it's like a great soundtrack, you know, um, you know, and there are other films that work really great and also have a great soundtrack. So, but yeah. I, I think, you know, well, do you love when, when you get approached to do, let's say some DOP work for a music video and you get to bring a, essentially visuals to the music? Does this, does this kind of thing really excite you? Yeah, you know, I hadn't I hadn't done one in a long time, and then I've now just I'm now just sandwiched between two. I just finished one, and I'm just about to start one tomorrow in Nashville. For um, so that's um, yeah, I love it. I, I I they they're always fun. They're 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 sort of run and gun, and they have an energy about them. And I think increasingly because the budgets have fallen away from music video, they tend to have that same kind of like, you have to do them for the love of doing them. You can't do them if you're going to get frustrated because you don't have all the toys or whatever. There's, so, so, so by, by, very def, by its 
kind of definition, it pulls you back to this kind of like earlier lo-fi way of making stuff, which is always fun, you know, and it's, you know, it's, um, it's always, it's always, uh, it forces you to be resourceful, you know, it's, um, yeah, fun. What do you feel like you've learned the most being a cinematographer? And what do you think the biggest challenge even to this day is every single time that you step behind that camera? Uh, I think, so I think the biggest challenge is, is being comfortable. Uh, I think when you're young or you start out, you're so hungry for it and you don't know half the things you don't know and you make beautiful mistakes. And I think you can't make those mistakes again. Like I think the work I did on ballast was true and, and correct and, uh, and beautiful in some ways and was at least honest, you know, and I couldn't do that anymore. Not for that film. Like I'm just not that person. And, and that's kind of, that's a shame, you know, like I don't think I could anyway, like, you know, just something very specific about where you're at at a certain point where you do something. And I think you, I think, I think one can become comfortable. And I think it's the same with all art forms, you know, or, or maybe anything, you know, maybe anything in life. I think if you become comfortable, you become your, you, you, your passion, your passion ceases in some way or can cease, you know, you can become complacent. You can become irritated about, you know, not having the, 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 I mean, God forbid, like getting irritated about not having the bigger hotel room or whatever it might be. But, you know, it's like you can come irritated about those things that, you know, like equipment or, you know, number of days or whatever, you know. And it's sort of like, yeah, I think I think you have to always remember you're in the service of the film. That's how I see it, you know. And as soon as it becomes about you, it's tricky. Like, you've probably gone wrong is how I see it. Like, you, you're there to serve the film, you know. Well, speaking of complacency, it seems like a lot of DOPs, as the years go on, become just like, I guess you either resort to being a Zoom kind of a lens guy or, or you resort to being a Prime kind of a lens guy. Do you feel like you always are, are trying to not become just the, just grab that Zoom or just grab that Prime and just uh, be, be that like one specific thing always grabbing? Do you try your hardest to not be that kind of a DOP? That's interesting. I haven't really thought of it like that. Um, I mean, I don't honestly know anyone who, I don't know anyone who kind of like, I haven't seen the work of anyone who, be, uh, who I can't imagine anybody shooting a movie and being so, I've got to a point of being so sort of complacent or lazy that they're like, oh, we'll just, we'll just do it all on a Zoom. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that person should, like, I don't know what they should do. They should, they should just stop doing what they do, I guess, because um, that's pretty bad. I think, I think, no, I think it's coming, coming back, trying to, I'll try and answer it by saying that um, when I get a project or a script, it's the same approach with, like, oh, this has to be 35 mil. Does it have to be 35 mil? Can it be shot on 8 mil? Can it be shot on 16? Can it be shot on... Uh, a digital format, you know, that that really shows itself of being a digital format. And I think somebody like Anthony Don Mantle, the reason I really like 
his work and his approach was that he seemed to put, that seemed to feel like the question he was asking himself for every movie. And I think, I think the idea of the complacency or the idea of the kind of like being too comfortable is you, is the DP that's like, oh, I only shoot, shoot 35 mil, you know, in a sort of grandiose thing. Whereas I'd be really happy to shoot everything on like VHSC cameras for a film if I thought it served the film and was the right way to do it. Or, you know, Tangerine shooting iPhone, I think is fascinating and, and great. I think I, I want to keep that punk energy alive. You know, I want to kind of contribute to that. And I think that that's what excites me. Um, uh, you know, uh, about that. So, so, so to answer your question in terms of Zoom versus Prime, you know, if you, if, if a film for whatever reason benefited from all being shot on a Zoom, I would do it. I wouldn't do it as a, as a lazy approach for sure, but I would do it as a, like, if it meant you were capturing the performance and you literally were like, maybe you were shooting with kids that weren't actors and it's like, you don't have time to change your lens and do this and you want to just be able to stab in and grab a moment. Like I shot this film, Four Lions for Chris Morris um, years ago that was, that, that had Riz Ahmed in and it was a, it was a, a, a comedy about jihadi suicide bombers in the UK, you know, and it was, it was, um, you know, uh, he's a, he's a well-known UK satirist. So his material is, is always very edgy in that regard, you know. But we shot the whole thing on digital cameras, um, like Sony F900s with zoom lenses. And I, I, I did find it frustrating, I have to say, like to a certain extent. Like it was an enjoyable experience, but you realize, you realize that the aesthetic was second to the performance, you know, rather than a, rather than a sort of symbiosis. Uh, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that. Do you feel like actors that have that comedic edge to it, or they grew up doing some sort of comedy, are a little bit harder to shoot than, let's say, a dramatic actor? Can you ask me that again? Do you feel like an actor that has like a little bit of a comedic background to them is harder to shoot than somebody that's just strictly a dramatic actor? I don't think it's... It wasn't coming from the actors what what it what it was coming from was definitely a sense of like a transition from television to in my mind it was like a transition from television to cinema so it, it like it's it was partly that where there's not the same interrogation of, of aesthetic necessarily you know and then it's almost like well once you've decided on a on a once you've decided on the aesthetic, then you just use that to cover it. Like, so there wasn't, I don't remember, there wasn't the same, you know, and I honestly think there are different ways to make films. So this is, I'm just using it as an example of like, of, of that, I guess. And it was like, I remember that, I remember being at a certain point where there was two cameras running and you were literally like, had a handheld camera on a zoom lens and you were in a corner of a room and you were just filming it. And I remember thinking it was a struggle because aesthetically it just was ugly. Like it was just like, it wasn't a great shot. And so, and yet I was sort of forced to, forced to watch it for like an hour whilst we would, you know, whilst, whilst Chris was working with the actors and he was working through the scenes, but, but it's exactly what Chris needed to make that film work for him. You know, I get that completely, you know, and, and it doesn't suffer from that. But at the same time, I definitely, 
I went straight into another film where we shot 35 mil. And I definitely, you know, I definitely, I definitely missed discussing the, you know, the, really, really discussing the, the film language in a cinematic term, you know. Well, when you walk onto a set, do you feel like you're looking at the camera movement or do you feel like you're looking at the lighting first? How do you approach each, each individual set every time? Uh, well, if, if it's a real location, what, like coming back to what I said earlier, if it's a real location, what I love to do is just really explore what the, what the lighting, what the natural lighting is doing in that space. You know? And so it, um, I think I kind of realized early on that, that often you're booked as a DP to know when to leave it alone. Like you're not always, and it comes back to this same idea of imposition. You're not always booked to get all the lights out of the truck and, hey, look what I can do. Sometimes you're booked to say like, wow, look at it. Let's, can we shoot it in this time we have? And, or can we remember how this looks and can we try and schedule it? And, you know, because it just looks fantastic, you know? So I think, so often when I'm looking at locations, I'll look at it from that perspective. Um, but specifically in answer to your question, I think I look at compositions or I know I look at compositions and the way the camera moves before the lighting. And then I light around that in response to that. And I think that's kind of, I think that's just in, like has become integral to me because because of a certain naturalism and a certain kind of like human response that I have to certain things and, and, a and a kind of love of documentary photography as opposed to studio. I mean, if I, if I, if I'd really got into studio photography when I was like 18, 19 or something, I probably would approach it wanting to light everything. But for me, lighting is not, I mean, it's, it's incredibly important and has to be correct, but it's not, it's not as important or it's definitely, it's definitely composition and camera move that, that is take, takes, takes the edge for me. What, what else can we expect from you coming up? We know you have the brutalist, but what else is on the docket? Uh, well, I don't have a slate of films coming up. Um, I, I've, I've really been holding on for, for the brutalist. Uh, and then obviously COVID kind of knocked it out of the way, you know, like changed it, screwed the schedule up. So I really just been hanging on for that. Um, and I'm just really enjoying, I'm just sort of working commercials and, um, yeah, just waiting for, waiting for the next feature script to come in that, that feels like it's going to, be the appropriate one to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's at least three or four months going off and doing a film. And I've been lucky enough uh, for quite some time now to just to, to be selective about what I get involved in, you know? Um, and I think that's important. So, so yeah, I'm just, um, yeah, just waiting, waiting for the next one. Well, Lowell, thank you so much for coming on here today. It's a true honor. I think what you and Brady are doing and have been doing for a while is changing the, changing the game of cinema. You as a cinematographer have been changing it for years. Thank you so much for coming on here today. It really means a lot. 
Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. That was Lowell Crawley. If you don't know this man, you don't know his cinematography. It's well, the stuff that he's doing with Brady Corbet, Vox Lux, Childhood of a Leader, and then all of his other stuff from Devil All the Time, Brutalist coming up, another Brady Corbet. He did the TV series The OA, 45 Years, uh, his, his work on the Mandela film, um, A Long Walk to Freedom, just took over TIFF the one year. This guy is the pinnacle of cinematographers right now. He is top five material. So go and just watch absolutely everything of his. And uh, this concludes our broadcast day. Thank <laughs> you.